Church, take your Bibles. That's a little better. Go to James. James. Where are we? Are we in church today? What, what, what day of the week is it? Is it Sunday, Dale? All right, brother. Good. Hi, I'm Matt Vrogup. I mean, Mark Vrogup. It's good to see you. This is Church College Park. So, all right. Ready to start over? Hey, church, good morning. Take your Bible. Let's go to John chapter 4. That's where we need to be today for our time in God's Word. Hey, Joe Whitmer mentioned a little bit about some of the exciting news from Easter weekend. And, you know, numbers aren't everything. You can make a big deal about them and sometimes make way too big a deal about them, except that the book of Acts, when like a massive group of people were converted at Pentecost, it said 3,000 people were converted. So that number that Joe shared with you is a really big deal about what happened here at North Indy over Good Friday and Easter Sunday. That's a 12% increase from last year in terms of Easter Sunday, so thank you for inviting your uh, friends and neighbors. Additionally, uh, part of our vision is to reach into the city by planting churches, and uh, I want you to know that this Easter, One Fellowship Church, our newest church plant at the Ortho Indy YMCA, this is a picture of their Easter Sunday. They had 330 people there. It's amazing. Isn't that awesome? And you know, one of the reasons that we need to keep growing as a church here is to keep sending people uh, so we can keep planting churches because we love the city. We want to see people reach with the gospel. And just to be really candid with you, it's easier and more effective, and I think long-term better strategy to reach people by putting churches more closely located to where people live. So if you live like, you know, you come to church 45 minutes here, we're glad that you've come, but when you invite a neighbor, it's, it's hard for them to believe that you travel 45 minutes to church. And uh, so putting churches closer uh, to people is our strategy, it's called the Next Door Mission. And within our College Park family of churches, that includes uh, College Park um, Fishers and Castleton, Greenwood, and One Fellowship Church, we had just short of 9,800 people in all all of those services and all of our churches across the city. So we're really, really excited about that and even more so on mission because this is just a good visual reminder. This is a web, a, a traffic cam of, uh, of a standard Sunday morning commute. And just to give you a sense of why do we need more churches in the city, because this is what it looks like on Sunday morning and this is what it looks like on Monday morning, okay? So just again, this is Sunday morning, and this is Monday morning, and the fact that you were able to get to church easily today because there's no one on the roads is a bad sign about the state of the soul of our city. And so planting churches is central to that, and so your uh, both generosity and helping us to grow are vital for us to be able to see the fields that are right in front of us. Now today we start a new section in John's Gospel, and it is entitled, Marveling at Jesus. This has nothing to do with a recent film that released, just so you know, but, <clears throat> but what we have in this text is, chapters four to chapters 12, a beautiful example of John laying before us the works that Jesus does in order for us to know who he is. The previous section, when we looked at the word behold, we saw that John helps us to see Jesus calling disciples, the way in which he engages a man named Nicodemus in a conversation, and then how he engages a woman at the well, a cultural outsider. Prior to that, September of last year, we started our series on the Gospel of John, and we looked at what it meant to believe. That is the central theme of the entire book. We looked at the first 18 verses. This book is designed to convince you that Jesus really is the Son of God, 
And as John 20 says, so that you might believe in him and then have life in his name. Well, John is just gonna continue his exploration of the life of Jesus. And in chapters four through chapter 12, we'll be walking through this through the month of October. John wants you to marvel at Jesus so that then you will see him as master and Lord. So he wants you to see the things that Jesus does so you'll know who he really is. Now, in order to understand this text, it's important for you to see the final verse in our passage. Look at John chapter four and verse 54. So we're gonna start at the end and then we're gonna come back. So John says this, this now was the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. So this is the second sign that happens in the Galilean area, which is a northern area in the nation of Israel. But what you need to know is this is not the second sign that Jesus does overall. This is the second sign that he does in this area, and what John is doing in this gospel is not giving us strictly a linear progression of what happened in the life of Jesus. John is stitching together various narratives in order to send a message. John has an end game, not just to do a historical record of the life of Jesus, but John is trying to send a very, very clear message. Now, look at John chapter two. Go back to chapter two and verses 23 through 25. The reason why this text is important is because it informs what happens in John chapter four. Remember I said that this is not just the second sign that Jesus did overall, this is the second sign that he did in Galilee. Well, we find in chapter two and verse 23 to 25, a very important hint at what is gonna happen in chapter four. Here's what it says. Now when he, this is Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, so this is in Jerusalem, at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But notice this, this is very important. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. In other words, Jesus knows human beings. He doesn't need people to tell him what's in human beings. He already knows what's in human beings. And that's why it says he did not entrust himself to them. Why? Because here's what's happening in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, people are seeing the miracles that Jesus does and they are marveling at this spectacular miracle worker and they're enamored with his power. And so they show up and they're like, show us these things. And they, they watch what he does and they're amazed by him. But Jesus doesn't entrust himself to them, the text says, because he knows what's in them. In other words, they're more curious about his signs than they are that he's the savior. They're more interested in his power than they are in the person of Jesus. So that happens in chapter two. So when John says this is the second sign, he has that text in mind when we come to John chapter four. And what happens in John chapter four is that the gospel writer here is concerned that there were people who were not believing in him, in Jesus, because of what they saw in him, in terms of the miracles, but not knowing who he really was. In other words, people were marveling at Jesus for all of the wrong reasons. They were focused on what Jesus did, 
not who he was. So this text today helps us to ask this singular question. What will it take for you to believe in Jesus? So when I first started studying this text, I assumed that it was about the belief of the official. And at one level it is, but that's not the real point of this text. The real point of this text is the unusual belief of the official in light of the unbelief of the people in the area of Galilee. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is this, what does it take for us to believe in Jesus? For those of you who are here, you're not yet Christians, this is a great account in God's word because it really challenges you to think through. So what's it gonna take? How many Sundays, how many sermons? Like, What else do you need to believe? That's what you're gonna be asked in this text. If you're a follower of Jesus, here's what you're gonna be asked. You're gonna be asked to evaluate the extent to which you still live in the belief that led you to Jesus in the first place. And there may be some other areas in your life where even now you need to believe, not believe in Jesus for the first time, but believe in who he is, not just in what Jesus does. So we're gonna follow the progression of the story. We're gonna see a desperate man. We're gonna see him come to belief, in quotes, and then we're gonna see him fully trust in Jesus for who he is. So desperation, belief, trust, then I'm gonna draw some conclusions at the end. So first, here's this idea of desperation. Verses 44 and 40 through 45, really 43 through 45, set the context for the story. It says this, after two days, he departed for Galilee. And then we have this parenthetical thought. John puts this here, at sort of his way of sort of adding a commentary that Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So Jesus is going back to his hometown or his new hometown. Remember, he was born in Bethlehem he was sort of raised in his early days, his family was from the city of Nazareth, but somewhere along the way, Jesus moves to Capernaum, which is on the northeast, northwest coast, rather, of the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus had lived there for some time, it's where his base of operations for his ministry began, and what John is telling us is that Jesus told them that when I go back to my own hometown, people are not gonna receive me because a prophet has no honor in his hometown. Now you know this. I mean, this is what happens when you go back to your high school reunion and people are like, you're a Christian? Really? That's why it's a little awkward. Or if you um, struggle sharing the gospel with family members, it's because you know every Thanksgiving they're gonna keep showing up and they know the real you, right? And hopefully there's a, a good connection between what the gospel is and where you're living, but you know the pressure, like these people legitly know me. That's why it's harder to share the gospel with neighbors than it is to go on a missions trip and share the gospel. Because those neighbors hear how your kids treat each other in the backyard, right? Those neighbors know if you take care of your dog's stuff and, and if you keep it out of their yard and you're a good neighbor and you're kind and you wave. Like, it, it's, it's easier to go on a missions trip and share the gospel than it is with people who you're gonna live with for a while. That's Jesus' point. Look at verse 45. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Notice the contrast. John just said, Jesus had told us, I'm not gonna be received, and yet the Galileans welcomed him, but notice why. Having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. 
So remember the passage I just read to you from John chapter two? So these Galileans were connected to what happened in John chapter two, where they saw the works that Jesus did, but Jesus doesn't commit himself to them because he knows what's in man. He knows the kind of people that are in the city of Galilee. So John is setting the scene for us here. He arrives in Cana in verse 46. He came to Cana in Galilee, and then John says this, where he had made the water wine. So the first miracle that Jesus did was at this wedding where he turns the water into wine, and there are amazing parallels between these two miracles that we don't have time to go into, but John is sort of um, concluding this early narrative. First sign is the water to wine. The second sign now in Cana relates to the healing of this official's son. So John is not just completing the circle, but he's trying to make an important point about belief and unbelief. At Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. So, so Jesus is at Cana, it's about 17 miles west of Capernaum. Capernaum is a important city in the region of Galilee. It was ruled, this city and the surrounding region, by one of Herod the Great's sons. His name was Antipas. And this Man is likely an official in the court of Antipas. Antipas, by the way, was the ruler who ordered the beheading of John the Baptist. He's also the Herod in the crucifixion narrative that comes to Jerusalem and Pilate tries to pawn off Jesus to the, um, th this, this ruler for him to deal with him and Antipas doesn't know what to do with him, sends it back to Pilate. So this is a man who serves in Antipas's court. He was a man of authority, a man of influence, Verse 47, when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So apparently word spread that Jesus was coming back to Galilee, and the physical condition of this man's son was obviously dire, and as a man of influence, a man of power, and as a man of authority, he must have reached a point where he had run out of resources and options, and so he goes to seek Jesus' help. It's noteworthy here to consider that this man's desperation led him to Jesus. I trust that you know this is often how people come to faith in Jesus. It's still how people come to faith in Jesus. Often the road to believing in Christ is chosen because all of the other paths have proven to be disastrous. You may be here today and you're like, yeah, that's me. Like, I've tried this, I've tried this, I've tried this. And somewhere in your mind, you thought, you know what? Got no other options, how about I try church? You need to know that God can work even through that sort of decision-making process. Because the reality is the only way you come to Jesus is by becoming desperate. Sometimes that desperation evolves. You don't even know what your desperation fully is. Maybe a health issue, a marriage crisis, some sort of conflict, or just this nagging sense of incompleteness. Maybe he brought you here today and you're looking for answers. What's interesting is this official knew that Jesus was there. Apparently people had been talking about him and for those of you who are Christians, I just want to remind you that you ought to strive to be the kind of people who are so often talking about Jesus that when your friend or neighbor hits rock bottom, they'll know to go to you. 
Be that person at work who is so regularly talking about the things that God's doing in your life that you're known as that person that when a marriage issue or a, a, a problem at home or some nagging personal crisis emerges that you're on the sort of spiritual Rolodex in someone's mind. So you make deposits, make deposits, make deposits for those sort of momentary conversations that suddenly create windows of opportunity. This man comes to Jesus, he asks him, come down, so come to the city of Capernaum, and heal my son, for he is at the point of death. Now notice how Jesus responds. Look at verse 48. Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. There are things that Jesus says in the Gospels that are sometimes hard to understand. It kind of reminds you, remember I told you about the water turning to wine? Remember Mary came to him and said, they've run out of wine. And Jesus said, woman, what does this have to do with me? You see, one of the things that Jesus does regularly is he helps people to understand that his ability to change the situation in terms of his ability to do a miracle cannot be used just to serve the needs of people without understanding who he is. Jesus doesn't do, Jesus doesn't do miracles just to put on a show. He isn't perform these signs in order for people to be marveled at his power. No, he actually wants them to believe in him. And so Jesus is not just speaking to this man, he's speaking to the Galilean audience. He's speaking to him as a representative of the whole. And remember back to chapter two, this text is about the fact that people were coming to Jesus because they wanted to see his signs. They wanted him to do things. And Jesus says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. This is a statement of rebuke. The people wanted to see miraculous, spectacular, and sensational things. They weren't interested in the sin-bearing son of God. They were fascinated by what Jesus could do. So here is this official who is desperate for help. He's desperate for a cure, but at this moment, he's not desperate for Jesus. And that's why Jesus issues this rebuke. The desperation of this official begs another question, and that's this. As you think about where you're at today, what are you really desperate for? You see, there are some people in the Bible who sought Jesus, but they sought him for the wrong reasons. They were a lover of his power, but not his person. Maybe you're here, you're not yet a Christian, and in your mind, what you need is you need proof that Jesus is real. Maybe you've thought, you know, if he just could write it in the sky, then I would believe. Or if I could see the dead raised, then I would know he's real. But the point of John's gospel, friend, is this, that human beings are very capable of finding any reason not to believe. I mean, you know it's true. If someone came and said, I saw the name Jesus in the sky, your first reaction would be, yeah, that's just a cloud formation. It's called Jesus cumulus, you know? I mean, so, <laughs> or if you're like, I saw this miracle happen, and you'd be like, oh, for real, that needs to be verified. The fact of the matter is, if you're honest, as you take a look at your heart, we are very capable unbelievers. And what John is essentially saying, if you don't believe the word about Jesus, 
The Apostle Paul says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. If you don't believe the word of Jesus and the word about Jesus from the inspired word of God, why is it that you think that you would believe in a miracle as if the miracle is better than the very words of God? That's the question. That should encourage you if you're a follower of Jesus, you're regularly making deposits of God's word into people, but it feels like it's going in one ear and out the other. It's kind of sort of falling short, just know that it isn't. You may think that your friend would be converted if something miraculous would happen or if an angel appeared. And yet the Bible tells us that it is by the word of God that faith comes. So the point is that in our desperation, let's be sure that we're not missing the person of Jesus for the miracles of Jesus. Not missing who Jesus is for what Jesus can do. Not be just so desperate for the relief that Jesus can bring that we miss the rescue in the person of Jesus. So that's the desperation. Now, the second thing in the text that happens is there's some belief. I put this in quotes because what you'll see is that he believes here, but that he also, according to John, believes later in the text. And I don't think it's the same kind of belief. Verse 49. So Jesus has just said, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, this must have been a passionate plea, sir, come down before my child dies. He doesn't argue with him. He just says, sir, come. Here's this appeal where the man wants Jesus to come and his point of desperation is so clear and evident. And then notice verse 50. It's the key to the text. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. It's interesting. Jesus takes action to heal the man's son despite what he just said about the people needing signs and wonders in order to believe. And you'll find this contrast throughout Jesus' ministry. You'd see it if you were to look at the water to wine miracle. You'd also see it with the Canaanite woman who appealed to Jesus in Matthew 15 to heal her daughter. And at first he rejects her, but then does what she asks when he knows that her faith is genuine. So here's the deal. Jesus is full of compassion on those who are in need, but he's looking to see if those who are in need also have real belief. In other words, are you coming to Jesus because you want him just to change your circumstances or because you want him to radically take over your life? In other words, are you coming to Jesus because you need relief from the problem that you're in or because you've come to the conclusion, I made this mess and I'm making it worse and I need Jesus to come in and not just fix this, he needs to fix the whole package. That's the point. Jesus is testing him. And so that's why he says to him, go, your son will live. He refuses to go with him to Capernaum to see his son and to heal his son. Instead, he just gives the word and tells him, go, your son will live. The question at this moment is, what is this official going to do? 
Is he going to argue with Jesus? Is he going to use his position of authority? Is he going to say to him, my son's going to die unless you come with me? He has an idea. Jesus needs to come to Capernaum in order to heal his son. And Jesus wants to test this man to see if he will actually walk away with the sufficient words of Jesus, believing that what Jesus just said is going to happen. I don't need him to come because Jesus just did it. See the official's response. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Rather than insisting that Jesus come to his home, rather than reiterating his plan, no, 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 you have to come. Rather than using, I heard that you did these things in Jerusalem and I want you to do the same thing to my son. Instead, Jesus merely says the word and the official believes. Now again, I don't think it's the same kind of belief that we're going to see in a moment. I think what this is, is this is a first step of belief. He believed enough to leave the presence of Jesus having heard what he heard from Jesus. And as you're gonna see in a moment, his belief was then confirmed and then he believed, like legitly believed, but in this moment there's a first step which should really encourage you. If you have somebody in your world, if you're a Christian and you're praying for somebody, they could really come to faith in Christ and you see them starting to take steps and there's a part of you that wishes they could get all the way to the finish line and you're a little impatient with these early steps. Just realize that this man took some early steps. It could be that you're here today, you're like that. Some crisis, some situation has sort of woken you up to your need, and so your, your like faith belief step is you've come to church and you've not been to church in a long time. Maybe you're reading the Bible, or maybe it's been a long time since you've started exploring what it means to have a heart given over to a relationship with Christ, and you could resonate with this official. You know you're not there yet, but friend, you're on the journey, so don't quit. Don't give up. Or maybe on the other side of the equation, you're not like this official. Rather than taking that first step and saying, you know what, this is what God says, this is what I'm gonna do, I'm gonna take this first risky step, I'm gonna let somebody know what's going on in my soul, I wanna ask someone to pray for me, take these early steps. Instead, maybe you're not like the official, instead you're arguing with God, you're saying things like, what are you doing? Why won't you fix this? Come down and help me right now. And instead, God offers a different path, but you can't let go of your path. So for some of you, this message may be about taking some first steps by dropping your plans for God to fix your life your way. Again, when I started studying this text, I thought it was, this text was mostly about belief, only to realize, no, it's actually mostly about unbelief and how rare this man is. And then we see how it ends with this beautiful commitment to trust. Verse 51, as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So it's 17 miles from Cana to Capernaum. Servants met him along the way, told him that his son was recovering, and rather than simply rejoicing that his son had gotten better and increasing the pace in order to get home, rather than just expressing some sort of, of, of gratitude that that had happened, notice what he does, verse 52. So he asked them, why did he ask them? 
because he's making a connection between his early belief and his healing of his son. He asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And then here comes the conclusion of the text. And he himself believed. There it is. He himself believed and all his household. So the substance now of this man's deep belief in who Jesus was, not just in what Jesus could do or what he wanted him to do, now spreads to his entire household. And this is why now John links this sign to the previous one when he says this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. So John's point in this particular narrative is not just to tell you about the official son, it is to help you understand the nature of unbelief and the barriers that people face as a result of coming to terms with who Jesus is. And the question is, what are the things that stand in your way? They welcomed him in Galilee because they wanted to see little signs. They welcomed him because they were excited about what the things that he was doing. They were not excited about who he was. So let me give you some suggestions as to some barriers to belief. Let me bring this into 2019. Again, John's purpose is to challenge some categories related to these barriers. So let me give you a few that I've run into and some that I have wrestled with in my own faith journey and some that I see quite regularly in pastoral ministry. Here's the first one, the barrier of familiarity. Some people struggle believing because they know the facts of the gospel message and they've known it all their life. If you were to ask them their story, they would tell you how long, how long they've gone to church, how their parents and grandparents put them into church when they were young. They know all the Bible stories and they know the facts and the information. And here is what is missing. This person confuses something new with that which is true. They think in order for me to believe, I have to learn something new. When the reality is, there's nothing new to learn. The problem is not what they don't know. The problem is that they've not believed in that which they already know. Secondly, a consumer mindset. Other people come to Christianity because of something that they need. And at one level, we all sort of start that way, but the problem is some people never come to the conclusion about who Jesus is. They just simply want an exchange of a better life. Maybe they come to Jesus because they don't want to go to hell. Maybe they come to Jesus because they need their marriage or their kids to change. Maybe they come to Jesus because they feel alone or listless or they're stuck in an addiction. And everything else has failed, so why not try Jesus? And while, listen to me, a felt need can help you to get in the room or get in the conversation, the question is whether or not you'll fall in love with Jesus as your savior, not just Jesus as your fixer. The question is whether or not you believe in Jesus as Lord and savior, or whether or not you just want him to be your lackey. And John's point is Jesus doesn't do lackey. Jesus doesn't do butler. Jesus is Lord. 
Third, expectations. Others have a sort of self-conceived plan of what receiving Jesus or following Jesus should look like. So they have a plan for their life, and as a result, they want Jesus to fill in the gaps of their particular plan. They don't want Jesus to take over. They just want Jesus to supplement the plan that they have for their life. They have a wonderful plan for their life, and it includes Jesus. Instead of Jesus having a wonderful plan for their life, which they get to be a part of. As a result, if they were to be in the narrative, they would have argued with Jesus about coming to Capernaum because that's how it has to happen. And they are not willing to let go of their plan. Now, Christian, let me speak to you because this is where this really becomes practical. All of us have plans, but the problem is we can begin to treat Jesus as if he is the flavoring for our agenda instead of whether or not he's the master designer of everything of our lives. And you'll know this is true when your life gets off the rails if you can still trust Jesus for sort of the pathway that doesn't make sense. Fourth, the barrier of pride. Oh, here's a major problem. Instead of simply, simply obeying what Jesus calls them to do, some people push back against the demands of the gospel because they think they know what's best. They want Jesus to bless their plans or fulfill their life. They want change with their kids or their spouse or their friend because life is hard, but they don't realize that the first step towards believing is in not believing in yourself. So if you've come here today and you already know, look, I'm a mess and I don't know what to do, a friend, that's a great place to be because that sort of humble Broken heart is the kind of heart that God is ready to help and to heal. And then finally, number five, the barrier of guarantees. And there's probably so, more, so many more that we could add here, but this problem is related to those who want to be 100% sure of how it's gonna turn out. In other words, if I receive Jesus, if I put my trust in him, is this gonna turn out okay? And it is. <laughs> but you know very well that when you're in the middle of the gap between this is all gonna work out and where I live, you have to trust Jesus because it doesn't work out like you thought it would and there are no guarantees that it's gonna fit your plan. Some people wait until they can see every implication before they believe. And you know why? Because they still wanna be in control. Here's a powerful leader in the city who says, if Jesus says go, I'm gonna go. So the question you have to ask yourself, friend, is this, what will it take for you to believe in Jesus? For some of you, what will it take for you to believe in Jesus for the first time? Christian? What will it take for you to live out your belief in the same way 
in which you first came to Christ. Or just think of it this way. Where do you need to say today, Jesus, I can trust you. I can trust you. I don't need this, I don't need that, I don't need this, I don't need that. If I've got you, I'm good. If you say go, I'm gonna go. If you say wait, I'm gonna wait. If you say speak, I'm gonna speak. If you say trust, I'm gonna trust because you're Jesus and I'm not. And we got that straight and as a result of that, I know who you are, I know who I am. And that's the starting point of what it means to really understand what Jesus is all about. So the question that John wants you to ask, the question I want you to ask today is this. What will it take for you to believe in Jesus? Let's pray. Oh Lord, I thank you for your kindness, your patience, and for your unbelievable extension of grace to us. Lord, I pray that we would today uncurl our fingers for those of us who are Christians in the areas in which we need to trust you. And Lord, even just now, some of us may need just to pray, Lord, I trust you with, and just sort of fill in the blank to say, Jesus, you, you're worthy to be trusted. Lord, I pray for those today who are not yet Christians, that today they might see the barriers that stand in the way and say, enough. Enough, enough of my plans, enough of these guarantees, enough of me saying, I believe if today, Lord Jesus, they'd see you for who you are and become a child of yours today. So Lord, thank you for this text. Thank you for its clarity and for its power because it's the word of God. So sink it deep in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.